Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. I've been a fan of this composer ever since I first saw Horrible Bosses and Ride Along. He's composed the music for huge films such as Bad Moms, Sausage Party, Baywatch, Pitch Perfect 3, and Shaft. He's also composed video game music for multiple iterations of Medal of Honor and Mass Effect, Scalebound, and Madden NFL 25. His scores for shows including Agent Carter, Netflix's Lost in Space, and Prime Video's The Boys have garnered a lot of attention over the past couple years, and I'm super excited to welcome him on the show. And the composer is Chris Leonards. How are you? I'm so glad to be here. So glad to see you too. It's been uh, probably a couple months. (laughs) Awesome. So Chris, I was curious about your, uh, if there was a moment where you first felt like you were attracted to music or maybe want to go into it as a profession. There's been a few key moments. One of them was probably my, the first time I wanted to, I realized I wanted to study music and that, you know, I, I went, my uncle was dating someone in Massachusetts who was in a band, who was a singer in a band and the band, and this was like late seventies, early eighties. And the band had a trumpet player who was really great and, uh, would play a lot of great solos. And, and, and so I, I saw that and I decided I wanted to play trumpet. So that was the first time I was like, oh, I really would love to learn how to play an instrument. But then the big moment came when I was, I think right about 12 or 13, I'd been playing in the orchestra at school and taking lessons and, and I liked it, but I didn't love it. But then I heard uh, uh, Van Halen's 1984 album came out with Hot for Teacher and that solo at the beginning of Hot for Teacher. And uh, and I just was blown. I was like, what is that? That the, you know, the guitar solo is just amazing. And so I said, all right, now I got to get myself a guitar. So I bought a Sears guitar. I remember that. And I started learning how to play, you know, all kinds of uh, of Van Halen songs. And I think I played... I remember Sunday Bloody Sunday by U2 was one of my early favorite songs that I played. And so I started playing guitar and then I ended up in high school playing in jazz bands and and playing in rock bands on the weekends and doing that kind of thing. And then I also, it was really highly involved in musical theater in high school. I was uh, in a couple of, I was in Bye Bye Birdie, I was the lead in that and I was in uh, Hello Dolly and a couple other ones. And so I really started to love performing and being on the stage both for that and, and, uh, and, and with the band I was in. And so I kind of wanted to be a performer. And then I decided I wanted to continue studying and I wanted to really go to a big city where they had a great music industry and to a school that had a great music program. So I ended up going to USC and came coming out to LA. And even at that point, I still wanted to be a performer. I wanted to be a guitar player and, you know, possibly, you know, like a record producer. And then it was the second year at USC where I was basically, I had an elective composition class and I was writing music and enjoying it. And the teacher introduced me to a friend of his who was a big session keyboard player. And he invited me to a session the first time I ever went to a scoring session. And it was Henry Mancini. And the big fun part about that story, even though I've told that story multiple times, is I get to tell one extra part of that story, which is uh, he was scoring Tom and Jerry, the movie in 1991, I believe year or two before he passed away. 
So that was what made me decide to be a film composer. And my next project is Tom and Jerry, the movie, the Warner Brothers reboot. So uh, it's pretty cool that I'm able to sort of jump back on that. And and that's a, that's a really big moment for me to be able to sort of take that bookend to uh, to where it all started and when I decided to become a composer. Yeah, the full journey has made its way. <laughs> Uh, out of curiosity with the Van Halen stuff, did you get into that around like age 12, 13? Exactly. Yeah. I don't know what it is about Van Halen and that age. It just always seems to to match up for everyone. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, it definitely was a part of it was just the fact that like, you know, at, in the early 80s, being, you know, tr- playing trumpet was not cool. It did not get you a social life. It certainly did not get you dates. So uh, so it was like girls like the guitar players. And and I, I, I guess I was just hitting puberty at that point and said, OK, uh, it'd be much cooler to be a rock guitar player in a band. So uh, so that was probably part of the uh, the, you know, the initial attraction of the instrument. But it's such a, you know, such a fun instrument, too. So did you pers- uh, or continue studying, I guess, the instruments while you were at USC, too? And did you keep up your chops? I did for the first year or two. And then I, I really kind of stopped once I got heavily into composition. And I wasn't I mean, I think that was part of it, too. I, I, I learned freshman year. There was about 12 people in my program. And there was like three prodigies who were phenomenal, who all are still, you know, professional guitar players and there was like the other eight or nine of us that literally had to practice 16 hours a day to barely keep up and that was sort of me I I didn't have that built in and one of the reasons I really got into composition was because I couldn't I wasn't necessarily as good a player as a lot of the the real amazing prodigies. I, I would write charts for ensembles and jazz bands at SC and combos that allowed me to sort of still be involved and and write things that <laughs> write things that I could play which was kind of fun too so had you been writing much before that too, or did you just go in fresh and then discover it while you were at school? No, I'd always written, I'd always written songs in high school. I wrote mostly, we wrote mostly originals for our band and I was always one of the co-writers of that. I wrote some, I did a lot of jazz arrangement in high school for my jazz band. And then, uh, and then I wrote some classical choral pieces cause I was in choir. I wrote, uh, a requiem for my grandmother or my great grandmother when she passed away. And, uh, and I wrote, you know, four or five pieces as part of a, you know, a portfolio to get into college that I had to send out. So I, I probably did, you know, I wrote some classical, but I was doing a lot of jazz at that point too. Gotcha. And then when you graduated from school, what was life like? Were you nervous? Were you ready? <laughs> I wasn't that nervous and I was ready. I I did a couple things. First of all, I was pretty excited to sort of to start. I had spent my senior year studying with Elmer Bernstein and Chris Young. So, you know, I, I was pretty excited to finally get to do it. And I I was fortunate enough and I, I went and found this internship senior year at Concord Pictures, which was Roger Corman's company. They made all these B-movie slasher films for really, really cheap. And I had been doing all these free student films. And I decided that I needed to, you know, meet people in the industry and 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 get some experience. So I, I worked for free 20 hours a week for their company just doing mostly filing and paperwork, but I m- became friends with the music supervisor. And I got to the point where at, by the end of my senior year, when I was still in school, there was a movie that was had no budget for music and they were gonna just not even hire a composer. They were just gonna use a uh, music edited score. Um, and it was a horror slasher stripper movie actually. And, uh, and so I said, you know, can I do it? And I, I'll, they, I think they had $500 to pay a music editor. And I said, I'll, how about I do it for $500? And so he said, well, if the director says yes, fine. So I went and had coffee with the director and he said, great, let's do it. So I took 
the five hundred dollars, spend it all and more on players, on like two or three live players, and that was my first movie. And I think I spotted it before I even graduated that year. And then, so I kept doing, I did about 13 movies for that company really, really cheap the first couple of years. So I did have work. It wasn't really making a lot of money, but I at least had some work and I was getting my, my reel and, and all that stuff going. And I was mostly writing at night because I was two weeks after graduation. I was lucky enough. I found out that Basil Polidorus was moving from Encino to Venice, which is where I lived. And uh, I had met him at a seminar earlier and I knew he was a sailor. We had talked a little bit about sailing and I found out he was moving and I had a mutual friend say, you know, if you need anybody to just help carry boxes, I'll do it. Especially if maybe I can, you know, help you, you know, clean your boat or get on your boat sometime. And uh, so he said, great, come down for a couple of days and help me move. And when I was done helping, he said, oh, you know, and I also got these Roland samplers. Do you know how to work these? And I actually didn't, but I was like, okay, I better find out. So that night I called some friends who had them and I stayed up all night and learned how to load sounds and, and, and route everything. And so I said, the next day I came in, I loaded all his orchestra up on his samplers. And so he said, all right, well, why don't you keep working? And I ended up working for Basil for almost five years, you know, full time eventually. And, and he was the best. So I, I, I really was very lucky out of school. I, I was busy right away between being an assistant and also writing uh, these these indie movies. Yeah, I mean, that all really shows the entrepreneurial spirit that I think a lot of composers need. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's really part of it. Uh, you know, especially when you're in, first of all, you're in a profession where everything's freelance and, you know, and it's all about relationships. So the, you know, the only way you really get it's not, you don't really apply for jobs. You, you get the jobs from referrals and from, you know, working under someone, you know, uh, you know, sometimes it's, you know, when I was an assistant, I would often have to, you know, work f with the assistants or with the assistant editors or things on movies that Basil was doing. And I kept in touch with them and, and then they ended up moving up and, and then saying, oh, you know what? There was that guy that worked, you know, for Basil and he, I think he wants to be a composer. And, you know, those kind of things happened a lot. And it really, it, it is all about relationships and entrepreneurialism and, and, and just the sort of the, you know, the social aspect of that, which I always enjoyed. And, and, you know, I was lucky enough to, to meet a lot of great people, obviously at USC, you know, who have come out and done amazingly well, you know, obviously Eric Kripke and Zach Estrin. And, you know, they're now, you know, they're now not only dear friends of mine, but I mean, we've known each other 25 years. We were at parties together in college and now they both run shows that I score. And it's, it's kind of a, you know, it's sort of a great way that you get to spend your life with somebody. Yeah. It's a lifelong relationship and lifelong adventure. Yeah. Uh, do you feel like USC prepared you in, for a lot of that in terms of trying to um, to, to foster relationships and to, to get whatever that drive is that, that you have to, to keep working and seek out things? Um, oddly enough, I don't necessarily think that the composing program did it or the, or the music program in general. I think the music program and the composition program really got me ready, you know, to know how to run sessions and to make sure I know you know, new sort of the ins and outs and technicalities of stuff. But the the sort of the social aspect, the networking and entrepreneurial part of it, part of it is just that's sort of who I am, so sort of who I've always been. But I ended up really becoming friends early, even as early as like sophomore year with a bunch of film students. And then I ended up becoming friends with their friends. And, and I was sort of the always the only composer around. You know, and I think part of it's because I'm social, part of it's because, you know, I, I, I tend to 
you know, as much as I love music, I think I'm actually a bigger movie fan than I am a music fan. Even I just love movies always have. And so I, we, you know, we just always would go see movies. We go to movie festivals, we go to the Hollywood bowl. And, and so we all became friends. So when they did get to the point that they were making their own movies or, or shows, they always just called me because we had, we had sort of had that same feeling growing up and going through school together. I guess from that point then after working with Basil, did you feel like, was there like a gig that came up that, that made you want to go, that I guess set you up into being your own composer? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, the, 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 there's a couple of, of moments that were, were stepping stones. I mean, the big one after Basil was, uh, I'm trying to think if that was before. Actually, so before, so after Basil, about four years after that, I was still doing a lot of these direct-to-video movies. I was doing um, TV movies for VH1, and I got a call from the same woman who actually introduced me to Basil saying that Michael Kamen was coming to town and needed a person to help him with transcriptions. So uh, even though I was doing all these other movies, she said, you know, you really should meet Michael because he's... Not only is he obviously a phenomenal composer, and I, I, I just adored his music, but she said he's so good at the business side of this thing and, and, and the collaborative side of it that you, you really would learn a lot watching him and, and working with him. So I ended up working uh, with Michael for about a year and, and did learn a ton of stuff. And I ended up moving up and, and going from just transcribing. I ended up orchestrating about 13 cues on 101 Dalmatians for him which was a big step for me, but I was still, I was still sort of seen as an assistant or an indie person. The big, the big gig I got after that was, was a show called Brimstone, which was on Fox and it only lasted for about 11 episodes. And I only did four cause I got fired after the first four. And part of that was honestly my own, uh, you know, I, I really wasn't used to the TV schedule and I don't think I had necessarily the confidence to instill the confidence that they wanted. And I think the show had issues and they wanted to, uh, they were looking for something and they, they actually went through two other composers speaking about that earlier that to find that sound. Um, but it was a great opening and it was, and it opened the door it was the first show I had on TV on a major network. Um, and the next year I ended up with a show on the same network. So it sort of made me hireable from studios. And then the big success from that was, you know, two years later, Kripke called my good friend from college and said, I got this show supernatural that got picked up for the, uh, at the time, I guess it was the WB before the CW. And so he wanted me. And, and because I had done these other shows for Warner Brothers, I was hireable and, and, and approved by executives and stuff. So that led to, uh, you know, to my first real show that was a success that literally is still going and have about six more episodes till we're done, done with 15 seasons. And so that was the big that was sort of the big moment in terms of uh, of TV. And then, of course, the big moment in video games was Medal of Honor when I took over for Giacchino. And that was a couple years after that and amazing. And then and then Alvin and the Chipmunks was the big movie which no one thought was going to do anything near what it did. And it was a tiny little movie that I managed to get after doing some uh, smaller movies for Fox. And nobody thought it was going to make $350 million and it did. And, and that sort of, that sort of changed everything for me was, was that. And just to backtrack a little bit and kind of dissect some of that. So with Michael, like you said, you learned a lot. What were some of the the things you could share? I mean, the, the biggest thing that I learned from Michael, I think was, Number one, he's, and Basil was too, but Michael was an absolute storyteller and, and a character dramatist. Like he really, like he actually didn't even worry. He, he would sketch with no click on piano as he watched the, the scene. 
And he always tried to conduct as much as possible free time. And he would just, everything was passionate and it was very musical. And I think that was something I really learned from him was that idea that you play not what the audience is seeing necessarily as much as you play what the character is feeling or hearing inside their own head what's their music and that's something that michael always did i mean if you watch anything from you know from mr holland's opus to uh you know to robin hood to um band of brothers you know he he just has this great sense of being able to just write that Per, that music with personality of the character and it evolves in that way. And then business wise, uh, you know, I've never really seen somebody with just the charisma and charm and sort of effervescence that Michael had. It's just spectacular. And, and he just, he had so much fun making music with his musicians, with his directors, you know, it was just such a collaborative like team effort and such a, you know, enthusiastic storytelling partnership, you know, and he always knew if, if a cue didn't work and if, if somebody didn't like it, he knew how to immediately turn it around and get more excited about the, the new idea to fix that cue than the cue that didn't fly. You know, I, I know Silvestri does that a lot too. And I know Hans is really good at that, but it's that idea of like, it's not really about that piece of music. It's about working with the people that, are you know the director and the editor and everyone who's part of your team to come up with the final product the final story that's that's sort of so exciting and fun and 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 the the sort of the adventure of that and he just he just literally oozed that that was like you know that was his whole vibe and and he was so confident and uh and and charming about it it was just it was a blast to watch and i, I really learned a lot yeah it's interesting you noted about the confidence because uh i feel like that's the thing that I mean, it's very easy. I mean, as composers, we, we do that thing of like, oh, like this is just a sketch or like, oh, yeah, like this could use some more production. But in terms of confidence and building that up and just putting the music out and showing it at a review and feeling like it's good or making them believe that this is what we need. Yeah. It takes a while to get that. <laughs> yeah, it does. And I think that's honestly, I think that's one of the reasons I got fired from my first real show mm. was I was insecure as all get out. And I don't think I was, you know, I don't think I didn't write good music for that show. But once the notes started coming in and they didn't love things the first or second time, I just sort of crumbled and and panicked. And I think I lost a lot of that confidence that I was, hey, I don't worry. I can I'm I'll come back. I can handle this. And I think, you know, they they always talk about the uh the wounded animal in the herd, you know, and I think I just they could just tell that I was panicking. And, uh, and, and I was exhausted and I wasn't credit quite doing it. I, you know, at the time I was super hurt. I wasn't sure. I was like, you know, I remember having lunch with my age, my agent at the time after that, after I got fired and I was like, I'm never going to work again. And you know, that wasn't true, which is great. And, and if anyone ever tells you that it's not true, I mean, unless you do something horrible, but, but if you get fired, it's no, you know, like I said, I think, I think Williams is the only person who hasn't gotten fired. Is that maybe true? I heard Hans has never been fired too. Plus, I don't know about that, but maybe, yeah, I know, I know, I think John is one of the few that hasn't been or something, but I mean, right. you know, for God's sake, Jerry was like the king of getting fired and he's a, literally was a genius. So Elmer too. I mean, goodness. Yeah. It's funny that like it's casting sometimes. It's oh, like it's totally casting. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. Personality has a, most of the, and most of the time as they, as we all, I think we've all heard that thing, but like very seldom does somebody get fired from a movie that's great and, and working well, you know, and if they do, it's usually a personality thing. You know, usually when somebody gets fired, it's because there's either a personality conflict or the movie's a mess and no music is going to fix it or both. But it's very seldom that a great movie with a really great courteous and, and professional composer, very seldom will they ever get fired, I think. Well, on that note, are there any movies you feel like you've seen in recent history that that were saved by the score? I've always been curious about that because I feel like sometimes we, we get tasked with that because we're the last line of defense before a movie comes out. Yeah, I, I'm trying to think if there's a... I know they're... I don't know if they're saved. I mean, there are definitely movies that are like a good... You know, it's a good... It's a perfectly good movie and the score made it a great movie. I think Basic Instinct is a great example of that. I think that's a... That's a perfectly well-made, you know, top-notch thriller. But it only became great because of what Jerry did. I, I kind of feel that way about that one. There's there's other ones too, but I, I feel like I very seldom, you know, I I can't remember the last movie actually where I walked out and I'm like, oh my God, I love that music, but I couldn't stand the movie. I, I, I really can't even think of one. Gotcha. And yeah, just a little final thing here on that uh, section. <laughs> uh, so in terms of uh, replacing Michael Giacchino, we're not replacing, but yeah. following up Michael Giacchino, that must have been a lot of uh, internal pressure just to to match that. Like, how did that feel? Yeah. Oh, it was. It was. I mean, he definitely he 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 declined the job. He he was certainly. I didn't replace. He 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 decided. He followed Call of Duty uh, to Activision at the time, and uh, and and so there was an opening. Yeah. I mean, I I, th- I think I I sent him an email being like, oh my god, because uh, we had the same agent at the time. <laughs> it's like I'm nervous as hell. You know, people love that series, and and to be honest with you, I I think my first shot at it, Rising Sun, I. I I think there's a lot of decent music in there, but I don't, I think I didn't, I still didn't really get it. It was my first game and I, I tried a little too hard to, you know, I think I focused on the interactivity and and that kind of stuff more than I did the, the sort of story of it. And I think when I finally got to, you know, Pacific assault and then really more with, uh, with European assault, which was the third one that I did, um, then I felt like, Oh, okay, now I get it. This is really just telling a story again. So actually, I mean, some of that, that's some of the, my, my, my most favorite music that I think I've ever written is some of the later Medal of Honor stuff. And I, and I'll say that, that I also think it's some of my, I think Michael's Medal of Honor stuff is my, some of my most favorite mu- music that he's written. I think it's just, it's just spectacular. And, um, and yeah, but it was, you know, and there were all kinds of, you know, you go through that thing. I remember seeing, you know, and everybody, whenever you take over something that has some kind of iconic quality to it or, or legend to it, you're going to get beaten, beat up a little bit. I don't think I got beat up as much as I thought I might on, on Medal of Honor, but I definitely, you know, there were tons of, you know, people saying that, oh, it's not nearly as good or, oh man, it's too bad that Michael's not doing it anymore. And, and, you know, that's fine. And I saw the same thing. People were saying the same thing about, you know, uh, whoever, you know, Powell and, and Michael, when they, did the star Wars shoot offshoots and, and I got the same sort of, I got beat up the same way, uh, with lost in space when, when that first came out saying, Oh, it's not Williams, but you know what? It's hard. I mean, there is, there is no, especially star Wars. I don't think there's a more difficult job in the world than, than scoring a star Wars movie. If you're not John Williams, I, I just, I, I mean, it's just, there's no way to, there's no way to win that. <laughs> yeah. I was, um, 
I should have asked John Powell about that for for Solo. And but. and by the way, I think John did an amazing job on Solo. I thought it was great. Yeah, it's so hard to. And actually, like yeah, I was just checking out the Mandalorian recently, and that score is. It doesn't feel like Star Wars in a weird way, but it it felt really good, and it took me a while to get acquainted to like a different sonic palette. I guess me too. And I think I think and I, I think Ludwig's amazing. I uh, I think uh, he's one of my favorite composers. Um, but I think that was probably a really smart thing. Whether it was his choice, the producer choice, or, or all of them, was you know by not trying to just be what everyone expects of Star Wars. It probably eased the expectations a little bit of trying to live up to John and what he did. I will say the only thing I the only thing that bummed me about about Mandalorian, and I'm sure it was a conscious choice because there's no reason why they wouldn't, is I was hoping for a couple more of you know ex, a couple more statements of like the Force theme with Baby Yoda and stuff like that, and they never quite did it. Which, as a Star Wars fan, I wanted, but I but I know as a as a as a musical choice, they probably decided not to do that to differentiate more. Yeah. So then I just want to talk a bit about well, actually Sausage Party is one of my favorite. <laughs> yes. Uh it seems like you did a lot of comedies for for a little bit, but then you've a lot of people get stuck in that world, but then hopefully are able to figure out a way to branch off. But I guess while you were in that world, what was um yeah, what were some of the challenges of like a movie like that? Well, I mean, the great Sausage Party was absolutely a bl- like literally it was a blast from start to finish. And part of it was that you know I got to work with Alan Menken and who I had been working on Gallivant for two years before, and we had become become friends. And 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 he's a genius, and uh, so that's amazing. And and so already I knew. I mean, there was a great song that he and Glenn Slater had written to start the movie out. So I already knew we had some thematic material. And then uh, you know, and quite honestly, the other amazing thing about that movie is just the creative team that was there, you know, starting top down from Seth Rogen, who um, probably is one of the smartest people when it comes to music that, that I've ever worked for just with phenomenal instincts, great timing, very, very smart about notes. And yeah, he's really, really great, you know, and uh, Conrad, the director, amazing, it's just, it was just a, yeah it was a really great team and the movie was so crazy that it sort of let us all push like we didn't have to be subtle like there was no subtlety in that movie and I think that that was a lot of fun as a composer to be able to just lean into every over the top moment because it was so ridiculous so that was that was really fun when it came to Sasha Party and then comedies in is that was that part of the question comedies in general. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think comedies in general, um, I, I think I have a good sense of humor uh, and, and pretty decent timing. I've definitely gotten better at it, you know, but I, I, no, I started because, I, you know, I think I had some success because, quite honestly, I was a big comedy fan and I studied with Elmer Bernstein for a year and nobody did comedies better than Elmer. You know, when it came to the 80s, I mean, every comedy I grew up with, with Ghostbusters, Stripes, Caddyshack, all of them you know, so brilliant. And, and he was really the king of playing it straight. You know, it's like playing big, straight military music when the crazy RV with Bill Murray and it comes flying out in stripes is what makes it so funny. And I think to this day, even the movie I'm doing right now, like to me, I'm a firm believer in like, if it's a, a movie that's got a a humor that's based on, not on like verbal jokes, but on a, an overall story joke, 
then it's better to play it straight, you know? And, and I've done that in, in almost every single comedy. I did it in Sausage Party. I did it, you know, definitely in Ride Along. It's like when, when there were action scenes, it was hard, big, aggressive action music so that when something goes wrong and Kevin Hart pops up and makes a funny face, it's way more funny if the music that just stopped was serious. If you're already playing funny, when he comes up, there's no shift, there's no juxtaposition, and then it just kind of falls flat. So so I think there's a huge, huge possibility for music to help comedy by basically being, you're the straight guy, you're Abbott, you're, right? Abbott, not Costello, you're, uh, you know, trying to think you know jason bateman's a great straight guy it's like that kind of idea of like you play it straight and yeah on top of that too and you just or i guess uh, you mentioned alan menken for sausage party and then uh, as a songwriter too you've done a lot for film and tv uh, i mean you've had cuts with nick jonas bb rexa lizzo charlie xcx janelle monet uh just, the list goes on do, do you want to do more songwriting outside of the film and the media music sphere as well? Um, yes. I'm not saying, not necessarily outside of media. I mean, I love writing songs. I always have. I wrote them in, in high school, but I didn't for a long time because I was so busy just writing underscore. But I've always wanted to get back into it. And once I started working with Alan on Galavan, I really got caught the bug. And uh, and a lot of those artists that you just mentioned were all, they were all part of, uh, part of uh, Ugly Dolls, which was you know, my first movie musical that I did on my own. And Glenn Slater was my lyricist on that. And that was an amazing experience. And yeah, we had such a cast that was crazy, but I loved doing that. I want to do more of it. I've got uh, a couple of my own ideas uh, in development, both, uh, you know, in terms of, of movies and, and, and TV that are musical based where I would do more songs. And then I'm also working on uh, an idea for a musical for a stage musical. So I'd love to, I'd love to get to the point where I, I had something on Broadway and, and, you know, did a fully theatrical, you know, stage musical as well. Amazing. Yes. Just have a couple of questions left before we get to the last segment, but the boys have <laughs> been spending a lot of time watching it. Did that come about because of uh, sausage party? Um, it actually came, it was a double whammy. Uh, it came out because of both sausage party and uh, Eric Kripke, who's our showrunner, who, created supernatural who was my friend from college so uh oddly enough it was one of those ones where you know eric the eric had gotten the show green lit and uh had told me about it and you know of course he then had a meeting with uh seth rogan and evan goldberg and they're like oh what about music and he's like oh you know i, I think my, i always use chris leonard's and of course they and they were like wait you mean Chris Letters from Sausage Party? He's like, yeah. So so then at that point, I was like, okay, we're done. Um, and uh, yeah, which was really great. So uh, it was really a situation where everybody who who was making the show was pretty excited about me doing it right from the beginning. And, and that's been great. And as I said, Seth is Seth, is, Seth and, and Kripke both and Evan, are, they're all just so good with music and so smart that, you know, it really has been has been great to be able to work with all of them. Yeah, and the score is really cool. It's pretty unique. I mean, a lot of the synth textures, especially, found very, um, yeah, very moving. Thank you. Uh, it's it's different. It's not what I normally do. It's, and that's awesome and fun. But it's also, you know, it also took a lot of trial and error. And sometimes, you know, it, you were we were talking a little bit earlier before I think you started recording about how difficult it is to sometimes write pieces of music that have to do a lot that go on for a while but aren't really supposed to be hummable or noticed or, um, or, you know, traditional in a sort of thematic and orchestral way. So it really, there really is a, a, an art that I think I'm only really starting to scratch the surface of, 
creating minimalist music or you know music that's got lots of texture and music that's got lots of noise music that's got non-musical elements to it and you know it's hard it's actually very difficult for me to kind of put away the part of my brain that wants to write the big tune and realize that that's not necessarily what everything needs and and this particular show didn't need it and didn't really want it and uh that's not to say that we don't have a couple of real cool thematic elements that we've sort of like hang our hat on but a lot of it is like riffs like guitar riffs and and even rhythmic riffs and uh and things like that and most of the time they're played with these found instruments or you know pretty much all my my instruments for this show were bought from either pawn shops grabbed from junkyards sometimes they're not even instruments they're like made things that 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 we've made inst- instruments they're messy and they're sloppy and and I don't hire studio musicians for this show none of I mean we do for the orchestral part which which is every once in a while but for the most part it's me and 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 uh Dara Taylor who works with me and a- Alex Bornstein who's a synth guru and and Matt Bowen who plays like nine different instruments and is a genius and we basically created this little band this garage band to to make our messy punk garage sound and we play instruments that we don't know how to play all the time like i'll play i think i i took one year of drum lessons 30 years ago and i'll play drums because it's not supposed to sound good it's supposed to sound like a like a bad punk drummer and you know and i'll i played cello or or i don't play cello but i made it you know i just figured out and and because of that it sounds nasty and raspy and sloppy and gritty just like the team just like the boys do and that's what eric wanted eric you know i kept i kept turning in demos and every time he was like nope messier no don't produce it so well i don't want it to be i don't want it to sound so good and the worse it got the more he loved it so not worse but the more you know less polished it got so so that's really where the boys came from and yeah it's been great because i've actually i feel like i've used some of the techniques that i wasn't so familiar with as far as manipulating sound and and using instruments that aren't really instruments and I've sort of like brought those into some of my other more traditional scores since season 1 um and that's been really cool too because I think it's to me it's it's unique to be able to finally do that because I do get asked to do a lot of just like straight ahead orchestral stuff so it's fun to fun to be able to mix them right yeah it's a nice challenge too in terms of the gritty part I think I was given that note make it gritty and then what it ended up being was don't play in things quantized and then just working off the grid was exactly what worked. Yep. Yep. Don't quantize. Don't clean it. Don't like make even don't. It got to the point where like a lot of times you'll hear like you'll hear the edits like you'll you'll even hear a rhythm and I'll I'll do it and I'll play a sketch for Eric or whoever and they'll be like it's great and then I'll I'll be like all right well when I mix it I'll clean it up and I'll do all the crossfades and and literally we got notes like wait it doesn't sound the same and it was like oh you miss you missed the files that weren't crossfaded you missed the snap you missed the 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 thing that's not ended up that isn't faded out all the way slamming into the next transient you know which we're always told to clean that up and and he didn't want to clean it up cleaned up nice. Um, and then, yeah, can you just talk about establishing your team and when you started building your team, just musically speaking, um, of assistants and orchestrators and all that? Sure. Um, well, I mean, it re- you know, it kind of starts at the beginning. My lead orchestrator uh, is still Andrew Kinney, who was one of my classmates at USC, who's brilliant, still works for me all the time. And I have a couple of other, uh, another classmate, Gernot Wolfgang, is also one of my classmates from USC. Uh, and then a couple, two, a couple of my other orchestrators are P. 
people who were copyists for me first and they've, they've moved up and started orchestrating most of my, uh, most of the people who write additional music for me when things get crazy or busy or when we're, we're, we're doing shows together, most of them started out as my assistant, Dara Taylor, Alex Bornstein, Philip White, there's, there's, there's tons. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of, a uh, lot of, I would say a lot of the people that I'm, that I still work with as collaborators these, these days, they usually ended up starting to work for me sometimes as an intern and then an assistant and then a programmer and then on and on and on. And, uh, you know, and now I have 10, 15, 20 year relationships with all, with many of them, which, you know, that's why I can trust that everything's going to get done and it's going to be great. And, and we're all, before we're, we're, you know, colleagues, we're, we're all friends, you know, we're really good friends now. So I think for me, it's great to have this team that, you know, no matter what comes down the pike, you can, it'll get done. It'll get done right. It'll get, if anything needs to be done over again, there's no attitude, there's no nothing. So it's really, it's really a great group of people. And, you know, it has gotten so necessary over the last 10, 15 years that the schedules are so much faster and everyone wants to see every single cue mocked and mocked up perfectly to picture and, and they're cutting picture till the last day of the dub most of the time. So even when things are done, they're not really done. So, so there's no way you can get a movie done without a great team, whether it be conforming or, or making tweaks to cues or programming things. So they really sound like what they're going to get on the dub stage. And I wouldn't be able to do any of that without, uh, without such an amazing team. Amazing. Um, and then, yeah, um, last question before the final segment is about the Propaganda Bureau. And uh, it seems like you do a lot of movies that uh, Format Entertainment Music supervises. <laughs> so I was curious about your relationship with that and and starting the Propaganda Bureau, doing trailer music and all that. Yeah, well, um, so, okay, so the first, this actually goes back to Basil. So when I worked for Basil as his assistant, his musical assistant, he had a personal assistant that ran sort of the schedule side of the business named Julia Michaels. And Julia Michaels uh, ended up working for Basil. We became dear friends. And we should probably specify not Julia Michaels, the pop not singer. Not Julia Michaels, the <laughs> pop singer. But a very, an almost as similar, similarly as well-known, not was well-known, but as successful Julia Michaels. Um, so Julia ends up going and working at Fox and Columbia Records, I think, and then ends up becoming probably one of the biggest music supervisors in the world doing things like Star is Born and Trolls and Devil Wears Prada, all this amazing stuff. She's amazing. And she's one of my best friends. And and so she ended up teaming up with Dave Jordan, who is the head of music for Marvel and also the head of format. And Dave and I met probably 15 years ago, 12, 15 years ago, became really good friends. Uh, his wife, Julianne, is also another amazing music supervisor who I work with all the time who is also part of format now. And so they started this company and they, we all became really good friends and they're just big fans, which is awesome. But then they, they were getting me so many like, inter, like meetings and, and stuff at, already. So I, I kind of, at one point, Julie and I sat down and I said, you know what, I, I can't, I keep getting all this work because you guys keep, keep re recommending me for things. And I said, I, I feel like I need, you know, we need to make this official. So they ended up, I'm one of, I think only a couple management clients for them. So I'm actually represented by format as a composer and they're, so they're my manager and then uh, Richard Kraft and Laura Engel are my agents. And so they all work together. 
to, you know, to, to get me meetings and get me opportunities and things like that. So that led to, you know, it's like you said, it's led to tons of movies, led to a lot of great relationships. And also, again, we just all work well together and they know they can trust me to get everything done. And I know that they got my back. It's really great. But then Dave came a couple of years ago and decided that, hey, let's all put together some kind of, I have the studio Sonic Fuel uh, with Tim Wynn up in uh, El Segundo. And Dave said, why don't we get some of the great people that you've got at your studio to write some trailer music and, and let's put together a library and we'll have people at format pitch it, which is what we did. And we had a bunch of a uh, bunch of really great writers who were at Sonic Fuel put together and I produced it along with Dave. And uh, yeah, and it's it's gotten a it's gotten a couple placements. I know Paramount had a mo- had a mo- placement with it and a couple other things. So yeah, I think it's it's you know trailer music's it it goes really fast, and I'm not sure I'm not sure how long things are re- relevant, but uh, but it was a fun project, and I know we got some good placements. Amazing, yeah. I mean, Julia's incredible, and the format team. Uh, yeah, yeah, very likable folk. <laughs> Uh, so we're going to go on to the final segment for the podcast called Tech Talk, Ooh, a segment nice. where I list off a tech topic and you say as much or as little as you want about it. And first one here is DAW. Okay. So uh, my main writing rig is Cubase. So I've got a Cubase computer and I've got one big Vienna PC that syncs to it as well. And so that's my main writing computer. And then everything is output in stems to a full Pro Tools rig as well through and we use um, RedNet. So we're all Focusrite RedNet hardware. And it goes from RedNet to Pro Tools. And Picture is in Pro Tools. So I have a big Pro Tools session with print picture, dialogue, music, all that stuff in it. And then inputs of all the stems coming out of my sequencer. And so what I'll do is, you know, I'll write with everything just syncing to each other. And then when I'm ready to, to mix a cue or deliver a cue, we'll just press record and and it'll print right into uh, into Pro Tools and mix and ship from there. Cool. Next, we've got guitars. Okay, so guitars. Oh, man. I, I unfortunately have a bit of a guitar problem. Not as bad as most, as many. But, yeah, I, you know, let's see. I mean, my my favorites right now are probably, I have a, uh, a Les Paul that I got in Nashville last year that I kind of love. That's like a 70-something. And then I've got a... Uh, a uh, 335 Gibson that I really like, a red one. I'm looking around. Uh, and then I've got uh, my acoustic steel string. Is uh, I have a Taylor, and then I have a um, uh, I can't, Arden, I think. It's a, it's a custom guy from, from England, which I love, that I got from a, I got from a, a dealer here in America. But um, it, the back of it is U-Wood. I think it's E-U-E or E-W-E. And it's what they used to make uh, recurve bows. So it's super bendy. And because of that, it feels like the tone of it, just the sustain is is really long, which is kind of cool. So that's probably my main acoustic. And then for the boys, we went out and got a bunch of crappy guitars that are the best. Like we got, let's see, a Supro Silvertone. I think there's a couple of Tyscos. I think we have a K. I mean, they're all like, literally they're like old JCPenney, Sears, like junk guitars that just sound awesomely crappy. And that was really, I sort of discovered that on, uh, on horrible bosses. Cause, uh, one of the guitar players that I use, uh, and I used on that one for the first time was, is this guy, Dave Levita. Um, and Dave played with Eminem, Dave played with Alanis and he is just like the ultimate, like retro, 
gearhead guitar guy and he has all these guitars that are not anything you've ever seen he's like it's like jack white's stash you know it's that kind of thing where it's just pedals and guitars and it's all like the stuff that nobody else has and so unfortunately once as a guitar player once you see that you get the envy and you're like okay now i gotta go shopping and i always keep my my uh my eyes and ears out for you know for that one guitar that's sitting at some pawn shop that nobody else wants but it does that thing that it does really well and so yeah usually i just keep buying unfortunately i keep getting them and uh the good part of the crappy ones are sort of cheap sometimes, but but I'm, I am starting to run out of space for them. Gotcha. Uh, synth master. Synth mastering. All right, that is the one. The first thing I'll say about synth mastering is that I hate doing it. I don't do it anymore. I'm so glad to not have to do it anymore. Uh, and it is one of those jobs that I used to. I mean. I actually told the story to my new assistant, Alex, the other day when Dara was trying to explain how ridiculously time consuming and annoying it is. And then I did that thing where, you know, I sort of did the musical version of when my dad told me that he had to walk uphill both ways in the snow to go to school. So I was like, you don't know. When I used to work for Basil, I had to print all the stems on DA88s and ADATs synced with audio time code one cue at a time and you couldn't even load up all the samplers i had to load up the violin for 20 minutes print that then go back and load up the viola and print that and it, and it was true i mean it literally would take it would take us three weeks to prep sessions um which was nuts but but even now it's such a pain in the neck and uh and it's it's just a horrible tedious job that said it has to get done and it has to get done right and usually people who do great jobs at synth masters get recommended for better jobs that don't have to do synth masters anymore next. So that would be my only, uh, my only piece of advice is, uh, and I think Steve Schnur, the head of music for EA said this once he's like his two biggest, uh, his two biggest work pieces of advice for aspiring composers were number one, make yourself indispensable. So figure out how to do something that your boss doesn't know how to do, do it well so that you have to, keep getting the, you have to stay, they can't get rid of you, which was really funny. And then his other one was the, you know, I think, and I think I've heard this before is like the, the way you do anything is the way you do any, everything. I think that's the quote, you know, the way someone does ev anything is the way they do everything. So, and I, I certainly will raise my hand and I did a shitty job on some stupid, you know, things early in my career, but like, you know, the, when I did, I always did great work for Basil and he recommended me for other things. And, and so if I had sort of been less uh, precise and less enthusiastic about doing, I mean, there were many days where I was literally like scrubbing coffee pots and upside down underneath the mixing board, literally just labeling, you know, smelly, moldy uh, cables and, and testing, you know, thousands of cables and making sure just to find the one that didn't work. You know, if I if I if I moaned and groaned about that, I probably wouldn't have had such a ardent supporter and such a big fan from him later on that that got me a lot of meetings and got me a lot of uh, a lot of opportunities. So I'm I'm glad I took it seriously. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, do I talk a bit about what uh, projects you got going on? Share with the people. Sure. Um, so yeah, I mean, first of all, I will say I'm so blessed and lucky to have anything going on with the COVID pandemic luckily uh i was in the middle of season two of the boys and it was all shot so right now they're actually dubbing episode eight so the last episode of, of season two which we had to record remotely with all of us playing 
our instruments at our houses and then with the orchestra playing in Budapest and even then we had to split it all up because you couldn't put more than 40 people in a room. So that was going on and we're dubbing that right now. So that'll be out later this year. I'm not sure exactly when. Um, so boys, uh, and we're just finishing a movie called Barb and Star, go to Vista Del Mar that I'm doing uh, with Dar Taylor. And it's Kristen Wiig and Annie Momolo and Jeff, uh, uh, Jamie Dornan. And it's sort of this crazy, very quirky comedy about two middle-aged, like not very cool middle America women who are best friends and they end up going to the most uncool resort town in Florida and get caught up in this espionage thing with a romance. It's, it's kind of wacky, but it allows, like I said, it's one of those situations you'll see it where, you know, there's steel drums and opera and full choir and orchestra and Latin soloists and all kinds of stuff. So it's one of those ones where we got to take, take a lot of things seriously and, and set up jokes, but then also have a lot of fun with like an Island uh, vacations sort of vibe. And I just wrote a song uh, and speaking about writing songs, a song and a theme for a movie called the binge with uh, Jer Jeremy Gerlich is directing and Matt Bowen's doing the score. And he and Matt and I co-wrote the song and that's sort of a crazy like teen comedy, but we have a big musical sequence, a five minute long musical sequence in it with the entire cast. So that was really fun. And we just recorded that also uh, in Budapest Orchestra because we're having to do all this stuff remotely. And then next week I spot Tom and Jerry. So uh, that's Warner Brothers and Tim Story directing, who is one of my dearest, dearest friends and, and I just adore him. So, uh, so it's gonna be great to be on that for a couple months and then if all goes well, we're supposed to go to London in the fall and, and record it uh, in the beginning of the fall sometime and, and at Abbey Road. So hopefully that'll work out as well. Amazing. Best of luck with everything. And thanks so much for, for being a guest, Chris. Oh, of course. No, glad to be here and great to talk about it. some really cool stuff. Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong.